0: June 10th, and that means it is another opportunity to be together for the next 50 minutes as we talk about seals and marks. But before uh, you mark this program as commenced, let us start with a word of prayer. God, thank you for your blessings, your kindness, your concern over us. Thank you for the fact that you love us and that The love that you bestow upon us is ever-present in our reality with the risen Jesus. And we pray that you connect us to that experience today and always. For we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, welcome. How are you this week? How has your week been?
1: Oh, it's been a sunny week, so that's nice. School is over for our girls, um, my girls, so um, it's been a transition into summer, which is always fun but also it takes a little bit of adjustment
0: I'm going to pause at the uh, at that statement and I'm just going to I'm gonna ask where where were you this past week? Because it's been really cloudy in Loveland. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I guess I guess I'm talking about more in the afternoons, but yeah, the, the yeah. mornings have been kind of cloudy. Yeah. It's June. true. <laughs> June gloom, man. I've been worrying about
0: June. This is, I think, today's a beautiful Sabbath. Yeah. Um. And so the sun the sun is out, but this week I've been I've had to I like, put my winter gear in storage <laughs>
1: to um, take it out and again. I had
0: to take it out again. this week, so. <laughs> But it's good that in the in the O's house, <laughs> so even as Lo is shrouded in clouds, there's always sunlight in the O house. So that's,
1: <laughs> that's, that's a good that's way that's of putting a, it. That's
0: a positive.
1: <laughs> yeah. so, How about you?
0: Um, my week. My week has been good. It's been um, it's been good. It's been. Uh, School's over here, uh, finally. So we have the biggest graduation uh, over this weekend, which is our Allied uh, School of Allied Health. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're a graduate of our uh, physical therapy program, occupational therapy, uh, dietetics, um, physician assistant program, the myriad orthotics and prosthetics, and I could continue um, just saying... Congratulations for Mm -hmm. you, uh, part of the Allied Health and uh, School of Nursing, School of Mm -hmm. Nursing, School of Religion, uh, the few students that are in that school, uh, Behavioral Sciences, everyone's out. So uh, we all made it through this year. That's a blessing.
1: Yeah, it's exciting. I I love the graduation season because you get to see the culmination of so much work and so much time and so much effort and just to see the family members, not just the students, but the family members Mm -hmm. rejoicing and celebrating this collective achievement together is, is pretty incredible.
0: It's also this act in managing expectations, uh, because if you go to a, a graduations anywhere else, I remember a couple of years ago, they had a graduation at Howard University yeah. and the speaker for commencement uh, paid off the graduating classes, student loans. Uh, this past year, um, at, I think it was Tufts University. Uh, the commencement speaker gave like $500 gift cards to the whole graduating class. So it's also for, for those of us that get to communicate with you all, a, a art in managing expectations because we have no money or sil- <laughs> no gold or silver, but what we do have, we are happy to share with you.
1: Yes. And we're happy to share with all of you, um, who are listening from home or wherever you are as well
0: that's right. That's right. We, um, we're we going to talk about the seal of God and the mark of the beast. And again, this is one, uh, John is very dualistic. And we talked about this a couple times uh, over the past couple of weeks. Apocalyptic literature needs to be dualistic. It needs to live in this area of extremes simply because of the genre of literature. And again, you have this dualism being represented, not in the contenders in this cosmic drama, which are uh, the lamb or the beast and the dragon. But now on how the lamb and the the dragon are separating uh, their followers. And so you have the mark of the beast and the seal of God. Uh, And so we're going to talk about this today.
1: Yeah, I love that contrast. And I'll be interested to see how that continues in this conversation. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, Revel, we've been living and dwelling for the past couple months in Revelation 14, which as you know, is uh, the message to the three angels foundational uh, for Adventism. And we have kind of the end of the message of the third angel, which is Uh, the part where the lesson starts this week. You have this notion of smoke and torment, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, you have what we want to focus on, which is verses 12 and 13 of uh, Revelation chapter 14. This, uh, and this has to do with uh, speaking about the mark of the beast, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Other versions might say, and have the faith of Jesus. Um, and so a lot has been made within Adventist eschatology about these two uh, signs, if you will, uh, these two attributes that the, those who are sealed by God have. Um, keeping the commandments of Jesus, and obviously, Adventism traditionally has moved and, and really focused on the fourth commandment uh, and saying that we, as a denomination, keep all ten. And then this idea of faithfulness to Jesus or remain faithful to Jesus um, we've We've kind of interpreted that as possessing the spirit of prophecy, which again, it seems like revelation will point to later on in the book. And so um we kind of point out both our commandment keeping and our prophetic spirit as markers uh, that we, as uh, as people of God, are sealed by God. So that's how it's traditionally been interpreted. I'm wondering if you uh, as as you're thinking about, let's start talking about the seal of god if there's any nuance there in in your understanding of these two terms keeping the commandments and remaining faithful to jesus
1: i mean definitely the the keeping the commandments of god that seems to be a theme throughout the book of Mm -hmm. revelation in that there is a faithfulness that is demonstrated by 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 the people of god um it has been it is an interesting um, um approach that adventists have had um that we have carried with this the seventh-day um, Sabbath being the seal of the mm. Ten Commandments, right? And and there is some, some uh, biblical um biblical support for that. And and also it's it's because we have traditionally pointed back and said um the people of you know, the the rest of the commandments there doesn't seem to be a lot of argument about. Like right. every Christian denomination, there's no Christian denomination out there that says that. Oh, it's okay to lie or to steal or to covet, right? Those things are pretty straightforward, and yet there's this debate about the seventh day, and that then we point to as being the issue of the end times, um, and that the the faithfulness faithfulness to the Ten Commandments means that we are faithful to all ten, and not just nine of the ten is is what we have mm-hmm. said. Yeah. So that that's been a it, that has been a, our our approach to it. I do think that there is something there there is something to be because the sabbath the sabbath how it's how it's taught in the old testament there is an element of trust there is an element of a faith to the sabbath right that we that we um that god gives us seven days and just like we return a tenth of the money that he gives us or the wealth that he gives us uh, back to him, we we give him that seventh day as an act of trust. There is that element of trust there, so there's definitely that there, but I do think that if we overemphasize that, we also lose out in the beauty of the the, the actual straightforward message here that he's focusing on people who are willing to to do things God's way, mm-hmm. and that seems to be the overarching message of, of the book of Revelation is that. The people of God are those who follow the way of the lamb, as we've talked about many times before, and not just the way of the beast. And that seems to, again, be the the marker here. And I love this idea of patient endurance because that approach, the lamb's approach, is not an easy approach. Anybody who has had to face up to a beastly power with a lamb-like approach knows that it takes a lot of resilience not to respond in kind when somebody is is responding with force mm-hmm. and yet that is the method that is the way that we are called to and that takes a lot of patient endurance so that's that's something that as i've studied this book of this book with with you and um over these past few weeks that that has really been resonating with me that the keeping the commandments of god although it does include the the fourth commandment it's in the book of Revelation, that doesn't seem to be the primary focus of the statement that John is making here because of the overarching, overarching message of the book of Revelation. I don't know what you
0: think. Yeah, that's, all of that is good. I think we can, we can call it a day and pray and have our friends uh, watch uh, Pastor Stu talking about media for the next 38 minutes. (laughs) Um, Because I think that is, that is a microcosm of what, of what is at stake here. And I love the fact that you are noting one of the attributes that isn't talked about in our traditional interpretations of Revelation. So it's not that the people of God are sealed because of their capacity to keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus, it is that they possess patience and endurance. It's Mm -hmm. resilience that defines them as people of God. And resilience, uh, their capacity to mitigate distress and to deal with a situation in an environment Mm -hmm. that is not conducive to worshiping Yahweh, it's conducive to throwing your support behind the beast, that endurance, that resilience is fed by your capacity to keep the commandments and to have the faith of Jesus. In other words, Sabbath plays a role in the drama uh, that John is presenting, this play on eschatology that John is delivering, but it doesn't play the role that we think it plays. In other words... Sabbath plays a role in its capacity to improve our our ability to to have resilience rather than Sabbath as the marker of what it means to be people of God. Hmm. And what that means is the practice of Sabbath, and we've talked about this before ad nauseum, the the practice of Sabbath as an intentional recognition that you are not created simply to master the world around you, that you are created to master yourself and that the best way to master yourself is by ceding control and stopping to God, that improves your capacity for resiliency and for faith. Hmm. Sabbath is about trust, as you mentioned. And so that points us to this idea of the faith of Jesus. Sabbath is also about stopping and resting, and that improves your capacity for patience and endurance.
1: Hmm. I I love the take that you're taking on this, that Sabbath is not so much an artificial um, line that God draws in the sand and says, well, if you keep the Seventh-day Sabbath and keep it holy, that means you're on this Mm -hmm. side of the line. And if you don't, you're on that side of the line. Rather, you're showing the reason why God wants us to keep the seventh day Sabbath, which is that in doing so, and this is, we've talked about the Sabbath before, that the Sabbath has so many benefits to our own personal resilience and our ability to stay faithful to Him. And it is that reminder. Again, that order that we've talked about, that God is God and that we are not, right? If there's any day of the week that reminds us that, it should be the Sabbath. Absolutely. Because that is the day that we are reminded that God is the creator God. Mm -hmm. He is the one who created us and we are creations, all but creations, which means that we can let go of this day to to the creator and offer it to him as an offering, um, as a, as an offering of gratitude for everything else that he's done done for us and then he returns it back to us as he often does um with so much more blessing in, in resilience in care and he says this actually doing this is good for you so it's mm. an offering that we give to mm. God in trust mm. but God gives back this the benefits of the sabbath which mm. are which are that we are we are healthier mentally spiritually physically healthier because we engage in the practice of the Sabbath, mm. that's that's really powerful. I love that.
0: So, if Sabbath is this reminder to be healthy because you're engaging, if, if because you're engaging in this practice of cessation and trust and recognition that you are not in control, then perhaps the mark of the beast really isn't about worshiping on another day. Perhaps it is about doing something else. Mm. Um, so, Joey, if what you're saying is Sabbath is about trust. It's about recognition, recognizing that you are a created being. It's about placing your uh, well-being and um, your development, both emotionally and socially, and physically and spiritually. If that's what Sabbath is about, then the mark of the beast isn't simply... About following a particular uh, worship style, worship preference, worship day, it's doing
1: what? Hmm. That's a good question, Miguel. You know, that's it's interesting because um, I love how the writer sets this up. Mm. He he starts um, he he starts with Revelation 13, and he references the mark of the beast in Revelation 14, but he he mentions it here in Revelation 13 with with this the uh the dragon um, producing a look-alike beast mm-hmm. from the waters right calling it forth from the waters and I love how there there seems to be this almost and we've talked about this before this dualism that you talked about that that everything that the dragon does is almost a counterfeit mm-hmm. of what the lamb has done before mm-hmm. right like, um, he gives this this beast um, the ability to rule for forty two months, right? But that forty two months is mentioned in Revelation eleven as well, in in relation to to the um, to the two witnesses. Mm-hmm. So these two witnesses that are communicating the message of God. Now there is a beast over the same period that is slandering God, that is blaspheming God, which is basically a twisting of the message mm-hmm. of God. So everything is is set up as, like you said, a dualism. One is the counterfeit of the other. So then, then to answer your question, then the mark of the beast must be a counterfeit of what the seal of God is, mm-hmm. right? Because there is a seal of God that's mentioned, and then the mark of the beast, which is put on the people that are not. So it is a twisting of what, it is, what mm-hmm. the seal of God is. So what, what is that?
0: Well, let's look at it. You, you brought us to, to Revelation 13, which is where we're going to go now. Um, you already set it up beautifully for us, right? You have the dragon, the dragon speaks, and you have a lamb-like, uh, lamb-like beast that's that looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. And then you have, uh, it, John is beautiful at, at just using images that can be interpreted in various ways, uh, you have this beast being wound, wounded, you have a second beast that appears, and then you have, I think, what you're referring to, which is uh, Revelation nineteen, uh, Revelation 13, verse 16. It, speaking about the beast, also forced all the people, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their forehead, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is a number of a man and that number is six six. six, six, six. So this is the mark of the beast. Let's just analyze a couple, a couple of these traits that, that I think will fit well with your idea of counterfeit. First off, it is attempting to compel the world to do something in the very same way that the lamb is attempting to compel to, uh, the world to do something. Mm. Um, the lamb compels to the world, uh, to recognize the lamb. And so once the world recognizes who the lamb is, their default position is worship, Mm. right? The beast is also trying to compel the world to do something, but the beast is not eliciting worship uh, because people are recognizing who the beast is, the beast is forcing people to worship. So both both of the both the beast and the lamb are mm-hmm. out, uh, or, or their appearance creates worship. We should say, except one is freely freely offered, the other one is compulsory and uh, and coercive. Second, uh, you have um, marks on hands and forehead. You have the same thing happening, right, with uh, the ones who are sealed by God. Um, And the idea behind this, uh, we often have made a mess of trying to exegete both what the seal of God and the mark of the beast is based on our forehead or on our hands. And we've talked of everything uh, from marks to microchips. But really what John is talking about is the ancient practice of branding slaves. See, in the ancient Roman world, the way that you did that you could tell where a slave was from is that they had the mark of their domino or their master both on their hands and on their forehead. And so in essence, what, what this worship does, either co-opted or freely offered, is it is intended to show who, you, who you belong to. Mm-hmm. The third thing, which I think is interesting, is that it has a name. And the name of the beast is 666. And we've talked about this. uh, Some people have done uh, the numerical additions and said it's Vicarius Felius Dei or the Pope. Other people say it's uh, Nero, the emperor of Rome. Other people have even done uh, a mathematical equation that leads to LNG White. That's not what's going on here. The number six in the Bible represents incompleteness, mm-hmm. right? It's the it's the number of human beings. The number seven represents completeness, perfection. perfection. It's the divine. God. It's the number of God because it is it is finished, and so it's it seems. Uh, by the way, in Revelation, every time you hear things repeated three times, it is done for emphasis. So it's like uh, they didn't have. Uh, exclamation points or big bold letters in Greek, so they repeated things a couple times in order for you to get the point that this was really important. And so, if Jesus's ultimate call on the cross is to say it is finished, the beast's ultimate attempt. Uh, to set that in reversal is to say it is incomplete. Mm. And so the mark of the beast is defined not by what it is, but what it lacks. And what it lacks is our free ascent and our free recognition of who God is that propels us to worship.
1: Mm. So the mark of the beast, the way is almost a description of the way of the beast, Mm -hmm. which is compulsory. Mm -hmm. It's forcing upon people Worship rather than, um, than uh, inspiring worship the way that the Lamb does. Because the, when the Lamb appears, it's it's like the heavenly host can't help but worship. But it's not because the Lamb um, forces them to stop buying or selling. Right? It's it's not forcing it on. It's it's inspiring. It's eliciting this worship from us. And again, that's that's like you've talked about is is the difference between the way of the Lamb. And the way of the beast and again that contrast is made here with the mark of the beast mm-hmm. that's that's really well said
0: and so you have this idea of a lot of things right so you have this we've talked about this a lot about the buying and the selling and what that's going to look like in the drama of earth's history as uh, the end draws draws near i don't think that that's what john has in mind now I know the lesson talks about this allegiance between a political and economic and a religious power. Um, I don't know if those differentiations would have been as clear to John as they are to us now. I think when you were, when you were if you were if we had John here, and how wonderful would that be? And you were interviewing him and you asked him the question: Is there a power? Uh, is there a differentiation between the religious, the economical, and the political powers in the world you live in? I think John would say no. It's, it's all the same thing. It's a system that is intended to provide you peace, but it does so by alienating people uh, from the marketplace, as it will. Um, and I think that's where the difference is. It's not in the sense that there are all these powers colluding together in order to destroy the lamb. It is that we've set up a system Hmm. that is a counterfeit system, and that system's politics are going to be coercive its economical uh, approaches and policies are also going to be coercive Mm. and its religious practices are going to be coercive. And so I think rather than than focusing on, and we've said this a lot, I think Mm. we've said this every week, rather than focusing on world events and saying how are these political and economic and religious powers colluding together, I think the question needs to be the systems that I am building and the systems that I am a part of, both religiously, po- politically, economically, socially, spiritually, are those systems coercive, or are those system, or do those systems produce freely offered worship? Mm. I think that's the question, and that is a question that takes uh, this meta narrative from kind of this abstract place where we, where uh, revelation is something that is happening to us and it makes the book something that happens with us and i think mm-hmm. that's job, as as any good preacher That's John's ultimate desire, Mm -hmm. that we become participants in the narrative.
1: So John isn't just focusing, pointing forward to a time where this is going to be a big issue in the future. What you're saying is that John is recognizing that these forces that are at play right now Mm -hmm. in the present, they will happen in the future too, and they have happened in the past, but they are in play at the present. And so John, as a as a preacher, as a as a person who cares deeply for these congregations that he is writing to, wants them to be aware that this beastly force, the mark of the beast, all of these things are at play right now in your congregations. And you need to be aware that you are not following the way mm. of the beast, the way of force, the way of compulsory worship rather than the way of the lamb.
0: Mm. That's, that's very well said. And I think I would just add... That for John, the way of the lamb is the way of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that's where the buying and selling uh, comes in. Hmm. So in the ancient Roman world, you had trade guilds. And we've talked about the fact that Rome was really, really hierarchically separated. We currently, I think, and I think it has to do with some of the lenses that that we've adopted to color our interpretation of Revelation. We think that the problem... Uh, for the Christians was that they were preaching Jesus, and that was uh, Rome was intolerant to that and so they were persecuted. Actually, quite the contrary. Rome was very re- was tolerant in allowing you the pursuit of whatever religion you wanted. Uh, to pursue as long as you had your political and social allegiance was and economic allegiance was to rome Uh, so if you were a Christian rome would have been okay if you were a christian and offered uh sacrifices to jesus in the name of the roman emperor rome would have said fantastic The, the part where christians in the early uh first century get in trouble isn't because they're worshiping Jesus. It's because the way. It's because of the way that they're worshiping Jesus. Mm. And so you would have these trade guilds, right? And if we were uh, tanners, we'd all go and um, we'd be part of the tanners guild. And so you and I would uh, relate to people that think like us and look like us and have the same economic advantages as tanners that we do. Um, if you were Masons, it's the same you would be part of the uh guild of Masons if you were uh a co- if you had a co- if you were into commerce it was a commerce uh commerce uh trade guild but the but Christian and so they would gather and they would gather sometimes daily um Christians didn't do that though mm-hmm. early Christian worship um when people started seeing it around what they actually st- started to fear was that in a Christian house of worship, what you had was the deconstruction of Roman society. And that is what uh, really prompted Rome to start casting first a suspicious eye and then um, it, it became uh, violent uh, towards Christian. But it, it wasn't so much about our Christian confessions, rather, it was about the f- the implications of said confessions. Mm. And so I think another thing that we need to consider when we're talking about the seal and the mark is that our confessions, what we say about the lamb, needs to have uh, consequences in the sphere of real life and societal life. And that those confessions have always, from the beginning, have always put you at odds with a. Uh, with uh, your, the society at large.
1: Wow. So Rome had was pushing back on Christians not because of what they believed so much as the fact that the way that they believed it seemed to des- destabilize and tear at the mm-hmm. fabric of Roman society. Mm-hmm. At the heart of Romans, which is which is why they also refer to um, Christians as atheists, because they they didn't recognize any other gods mm-hmm. besides their one God, and they wouldn't engage in these other practices because of them. That were at the heart of what kept Roman society merged. Um, like you said, it was Roman Roman society. Um, the roman empire was an amalgamation of so many different groups and so many different religions and so many different cultures and yet what held them together were certain practices and certain ways of doing those things and christians the christian message seemed to really tear at the heart of that and could target could and they saw it as ending up tearing apart roman society which is why they Responded strongly against it when they did is that is that that's what you're
0: that's absolutely right? Rome had a great great tact and a knack for domesticating uh, Local religious practices and mm. so what they would do is you would take this religious practice practice Then you would domesticate it and you would appropriate it and it would, it would become part of what you know, as, as you said the amal the amalgamation of uh, religion and gods and just this big society where everyone uh, had peace Christians never fit into that mold Mm. because the mark of uh, the seal of God caused them to be radical. Mm -hmm. So I was listening, and I'm not going to mention who it was, but I was listening to a very popular uh, Christian speaker, Christian pastor, um, in another part of the country, and he was advocating... Uh, that Christians needed to become more involved in political and public life Hmm. because the purpose of Christianity was, um, and the purpose of the church was to become this this force in political life where where Christian values could be then uh, appropriated by uh, political entities. And um, if you think about a lot of the conversation on religion that we've had, it's issues like, uh, abortion and gay rights and um, all these other issues that have religious connotations. Now, we're gonna, not going to take a stance on those issues today. That's not the point of our conversation, Joey. But what, what I do notice is that there's a lot of Christian conversations on how to take these Uh, quote unquote, political issues and baptize them with some religious, uh, with a religious aroma, and then to leverage the church to co-op some of those political institutions. Let me be clear. Christianity was never meant to be the dominating force in political life. Christianity mm-hmm. has always done better when Christianity is counter-culture and counter-political. Mm-hmm. The moment where you have a co-option of Christianity or where Christianity, the lines between Christianity and the state become very blurred, that's when you have a problem with Christianity. That is when the church loses its influence. Mm-hmm. And so to those who say hey, America was built as a Christian nation, or we need to pursue uh, appointing judges and uh, political leaders that are Christian so that we can have a Christian country. That isn't the vision that John has in Revelation. Christianity was never meant to be a tool of the state. Christianity was always does better, as I said before, when it's countercultural to the state.
1: Wow. So then, you know, looking back at, Christian history and the Roman Empire and the Roman Roman history. So that point when you had that marriage happen, when when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, it almost is doing what, I mean, this is what Adventists have said for many years, is is doing what Rome did to so many other religions, Mm -hmm. which is take it, domesticate it, infuse it with some of Roman practices and then just distribute it out Mm -hmm. to the world. And um, I read a fascinating, fascinating article this week by Nick Miller, mm-hmm. um, and he talks about the 1,260 days and trying to orient that in time. Um, but he he makes the point. A lot of people have pointed to what um, the the Ostrogoths um, 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 being destroyed and um, taken over by Rome, and then that leading to um, this. So the 1,260 days. Beginning the sixth century and then going all the way to the um, the eighteenth century, the end of the eighteenth century, seventeen ninety eight, right when when the pope is put into, into prison and dies in prison, and that that is like that twelve hundred sixty day period. Now, um, there's been a lot of debate. We're not going to take the time to clarify that because that's not what our discussion is about. But I found it interesting that his approach was not so much to point to um, military um, shifts. As as the as the start and finish of that, but to a legal and a political shift, where where uh, whereas the Roman Church, the marriage of the of the um, the Christian Church and the Empire of Rome became one mm-hmm. in the sixth century, mm-hmm. and that leading to the point where then eventually. Um, in, in 1798 with Napoleon and his his general, that, that shift then turned atheist. Now the government was an atheistic um, government, and so that marriage was now broken. And so he seems to be pointing so much more towards the fact that of that legal and and um, religious, political, religio-political marriage mm-hmm. as being the start and finish of that twelve hundred and sixty-day period, and that seems. Am I re- reading you right? That seems to be what you're saying as well. You know, not not pointing to specific dates, but that that is the problem: is when the religious and the political become merged, and then the religious starts to take this, like you said, a dominant position, and starts using the the. The strength and force of the political arm to to compel people to worship—that mm. is when we get into trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is—I think—I think Nick makes a, a good point. Again, we're not going to talk about dates because, uh, shocking as it might be, you, uh, we Adventists, as you know, don't have a, a good track record with dates. I think, however, what it what actually bears uh, noting is that the marriage between uh at, in, in that time it was uh the whole the the church and the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire that starts to create a series of decisions um, by on the part uh, both of the emperor and uh some of the most prominent Bishops to try and make or, or to try to uh, evangelize and uh, proselytize for Christianity within within the emperor and if you start reading what happens in Rome uh, especially as uh, as uh, the 300s start to to come to a close uh, so at the end of the fourth century you start having Christian Bishops taking a more uh, dogmatic stands towards evangelism within, uh, within their bishoprics, where if you weren't, um, and you can imagine how difficult this shift might have been for some people who uh, one day uh, are worshiping whatever local gods they have under, under Roman protection, and then um, in the, at, by the end of the fourth century, you start having some bishoprics say, no, 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 you have to convert to Christianity or face some, some pretty uh, heinous consequences. And so it seems like, again, what is happening is, sure, um, the church is becoming this, this dragon that looks like a beast that looks like a lamb and it's talking about the lamb and jesus the meek and jesus the poor but actually is leveraging its power in a beastly way mm. and this is before catholicism even emerged this is early early christian history yeah um and so you have uh the oppression of, of people within the empire, you have a gender oppression that is happening uh, that is becoming much more exacerbated. I, I can make an argument, um, and I think uh, it, it's, it's a historically verifiable argument, that um, the church becomes much more misogynistic once it becomes a part of the state mm. before you have uh the early apostolic church, you have female leaders, uh, you have female apostles, you have uh you have really the, the church being uh, at the forefront of gender relations. Mm-hmm. After the after the church becomes part co-opted by the empire, you have uh repression of women, you have persecution of women, uh, you have abuse of women, uh under the guise of uh, Christian uh, love and, and, and Christian order and Christian authority and these these really paternalistic readings of Scripture, that, had, that misogynism and that, opp- that oppression of women happens under the church. Hmm. And it, it is worse, by the way, than it was uh, during the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so I think that's why the invitation from John is to be very careful not of of the institutions we're participating in, hmm. because any institution can look like a lamb, but really speak like a dragon.
1: Wow, wow, yeah, that is a, a fascinating insight that that the, that oppression enters the church more fully once it marries with the political mm-hmm. structure, um, and that makes sense because. Yeah, there's that that saying that um, power corrupts. Absolute um, power corrupts absolutely, right? Um, and I think the reason why power corrupts is that when we have the power, the the option to use a beast-like force, it's hard not to use it. You know, um, was it Teddy Roosevelt that said, um, carry a big stick, speak softly, but carry Carry a big big stick. stick. Yeah, but when you have the big stick, it's hard not to use Mm. the big stick, right? And and that's even true. You would think, oh, if anybody could carry a big stick and not use it, it should be the people of God, the church, right? But time has shown over and over again when the people of God have had the big stick, we've often used it Mm -hmm. in the name of God. Over and over again throughout history, whenever Christians had that lead role in, in in the dominant role in politics, we haven't used that power in lamb-like ways. We've used it in beastly ways. We and so I find it find it so interesting that you say that we were never meant to have that power. Mm-hmm. We were never meant to carry the big stick. That is not the role uh, of the church. So going back to this, the seal of God and the, the mark of the beast, it seems like there are different elements that you have mentioned. The fact that um, the big question throughout the book of Revelation has been worship, right? Who will you worship? Will it be God or will it be the beast or something else, an idol of our own creating, right? Worship is, is at that, that element. And in that worship is who will, what, whose way will you follow? If you're worshiping God, will you follow the way of the lamb? If you're worshiping the beast, are you going to follow beastly ways? And that has to do with power and coercion and that power and coercion often comes from being aligned with the political structure mm-hmm. rather than being that prophetic voice speaking against it, being that countercultural voice. Mm-hmm. So that is that, that tension, that question seems to be throughout Throughout scripture, I mean, we saw that with the Tower of Babel, right? We talked about, right? Um, that, that question is throughout scripture, it is present today and it will be present in the future in some manner or form. But that those are the main questions. So then what do we do about Sunday laws? Like, the the particular expression of these these three things and i could see that i mean especially from the time where adventist was born during the time of ellen white in the 1800s sunday laws were a big mm-hmm. thing right um so as as they looked at this expression of force they could definitely see oh yeah Com- compulsory worship on a particular day by the government right using religious powers and compelling people. Yes, the Sunday law is an expression of beastly force. And if that continues to grow, that can be the, a big question. Will you fall in line with this and, and, and just succumb to what the, or will we be that continue to be that voice speaking out against this, this forced way of worship? We can definitely see that. Um, is that how you see the Sunday laws, or what? What's what's your, what are your thoughts about? Yeah, that?
0: that's absolutely how I how I how I see the Sunday laws. And to be fair, in the eighteen hundreds, Sunday laws um, were coercive because if you were if you were working or you were not going to church on Sunday, you get thrown to you get thrown into jail. And so here you have a religious ideal uh, seeping in uh, and being enforced by the government. And being and being uh, being uh, something that is that is occurring uh, under the guise of of a great thing, which is hey, family and this worship, blah blah blah. Now, a more interesting question would be, if Adventists were the majority mm-hmm. of um, of people. Uh, would we be advocating for Saturday laws? Mm. And I think Loma Linda uh, is, is a great case in point. Uh, up to a couple years ago, there were two uh, cities, uh, two zip codes in the country where mail wasn't delivered mm-hmm. in, on Saturday. One was a Hasidic Jewish uh, community in New York. The other one was in Loma Linda. And as uh, a lot of our uh Federal institutions began to deal with uh, pressures, financial pressures. Uh, Loma Linda had a discussion. Should we include? Now, Loma Linda is, uh, there's, now it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty big mix between people who are Adventists and people who aren't. There's a lot of people, uh, at least in my lifetime, that have moved that don't happen to be Adventists. Mm. Um, And so there was a big conversation. Should we receive? Uh, Mail on on the Sabbath and people got up in arms and it was it was it, it got contentious if Adventists were the majority um, and uh, in the country would we be compelled to say hey Sabbath is really good for you uh, healthy lifestyle is really good for you um, vegetarian food is really good for you we're going to compel you to do these things for your own good. And if mm. that became the case, would Adventists then be, uh, could, could Adventists then be accused of operating, uh, again, wow. looking like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon?
1: Wow. Wow. Way to take it right right into our hearts at home. Because I, I know, I know that that has been a, a sore spot for Adventists living here in Loma Linda. Um, and, and understandably so, especially if you worked for the post office, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it was nice. It was nice that you didn't have to work on Sat, like be the only post office in all of the, or one of two, um, that, that didn't work on Saturday and on Sabbath. That was really nice. Um, and yet that good goal, that good goal, if we achieve it through beastly means, means that it no longer becomes good. And that is a hard message to hear. Because because yeah, if 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 Adventists, and you know, this is not where we think um world history will ever go, but if Adventists ever got into dominant power in the United States and we decided, man, everybody should take sundown on Friday night. To sundown on Saturday night, off, and that would make it easier for everybody to keep the Sabbath. That's a good thing. Let's make it into a law. Mm. Is that any different than anybody doing that with Sunday, right? Just because the day is the correct day, does that mean that using force, using the prescriptive law is okay? And that's a question that we have to keep asking ourselves because it seems like what Revelation is saying is that is not the role of God's people mm. to use force to compel good things. Mm. Even when we see them as being good, even they, when they look lamb-like, if we use beastly meth- methods, it's not the way of the lamb. And that is really, really hard to accept.
0: Let's remember this. Uh, and this is, I think, why I'm blessed to be part of a religious community that has two things going for it it's relatively new and it's relatively small because revelation is meant as resistance literature Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be consumed by the majority of the population it never has it never will and so the question is adventism can read i think revelation with a with a specific set of eyeglasses because a it's new and so our track record isn't as blemished as other older denominations simply because we haven't been around as long. And it's small, which means our our overall influence ha- has not been uh, the one that, um, that has been exercised by some other denominations that have much bigger influence. And mm-hmm. so uh, their mistakes are uh, probably more prominent. But... And here's here's where it's applicable to us. So in the global scheme of Christianity, Adventism is a minority, and so it can it can it can read Revelation with a with a good set of eyeglasses. But within my own denomination, I'm not the majority. I I'm still the minority, right? I'm in Southern California. I'm in Loma Linda. Um The majority of Adventists, let's face it. Um, come at, uh, if we if we were to take the votes from the last couple general conference uh, sessions, come at uh, certain passages of Scripture different than I do. Mm-hmm. And so even within Adventism, I think it's safe to say we're in the minority, which again allows us to pontificate eloquently about how revelation is uh, resistance and how we can't be coercive but at some point if you start deconstructing long enough i'm not going to be in the minority Um, Mm -hmm. however you want to deconstruct and it is at that point that it becomes very tempting to start coercing people into looking at the world with my set of eyeglasses simply because i think i'm right Mm -hmm. and so the invitation i think is is always first praise Uh, Because we're not in the majority and that makes it easier to read resistance literature. But secondly um, It it forces us to pause and the reason why you pause is because at some point I'm going to be in the majority and it is at that point that I need to ask Around and say hey does everyone else read it the same way? Uh, Because I am more inclined to start forcing my opinion on others when I'm part of the majority
1: Yeah. At some point, I love that. At some point, all of us are a part of the majority Mm -hmm. in some form or another, whether it's as a parent in our homes, as a pastor in a church, right, where our voice carries more weight Mm -hmm. than others. At that point, will we use the authority that we have in beastly ways Mm -hmm. or will we follow the way of the lamb?
0: Because it's not really about the position, it's about the approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about Let's talk about the elephant in the room in the last 30 seconds. So Adventism, you know, and we promised we weren't going to talk about it again, but it's, it's just too good to pass up the opportunity here. Women's ordination. If you look at the congregation, uh, at Adventism worldwide, we are in the minority. Us proponents of, uh, equality in ministry are the minority here in this community, we're not, we're, we're the vast majority. And so comfortable as I am with saying, yes, the Bible speaks for equality, for gender equality, for full inclusion of women, I need to be very careful of the methodology I use in this community to to share that, those ideals. Now, this doesn't mean I retreat and I I start uh, equivocating. I think scripture is clear on this, but just because I think scripture is clear on, on this, in this particular community my job is to ensure that voices that are different than mine are heard are mm-hmm. respected are nurtured are encouraged are engaged with because if not then i'm coercing. Mm.
1: wow even with something that is good if we're using coercion we know that we're following the yeah. way of the beast
0: even if it's something that's good biblical that i believe in deeply and that has blessed me in, in incredible ways. Even that can be just one shy of the number, right? It can mm-hmm. be just one short. And 666 six, six sounds a lot like 777, seven, seven. but it's that one little shift in approach that makes the whole edifice crumble.
1: Wow. And then before we know it, we're worshiping the beast mm-hmm. rather than following the With land.
0: great theology. With great theology and great confessions and great statements of faith, but it's still the beast. Wow. Pray for us, Joey.
1: Our good and gracious God, we wanna we wanna thank you for following the way of the Lamb, of approaching us who are sinners in a lamb-like way rather than a beast-like way. You had all the power and authority in the world to come and rain down your justice and your anger and your uh, righteous indignation on us. And yet you chose instead to take the way of the lamb, being led to the slaughter, to sacrifice yourself for our sake. And then you call us to follow your way. Lord, as we take that difficult path, we ask that you encourage us, that you remind us, that you walk alongside of us and make it possible to follow you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. So today we gave you an extra three minutes and 44 seconds, and that is because we think that these discussions are important for your spiritual growth, for your spiritual maturation. We love to hear your comments. Please keep those coming in. And also, if you're blessed by what we do, we simply would ask that you partner with us. Um, You can go on lluc.org, click give, and you can give either to this ministry, which is our Sanctuary Sabbath School, or think about supporting our media ministry. We do this for you, and we we love hearing from you, and we love your partnership. May God continue to richly bless you.